a company that has its relationship with its employees, its relationship with its customers, very clearly connected to its purpose, that company then will be much more able to deliver in a very uncertain world like the one that we're facing right now. Welcome to The Bit and to our mini-series, Sustainability, Our New Standard, where we explore the ways that sustainability and climate change in particular will transform investing. Earlier this year, we announced at BlackRock a series of changes regarding sustainability. We're launching new products that increase access to sustainable investing. We're delivering data to help others build sustainable portfolios themselves. And we're increasing transparency in our investment stewardship activities. Today, we'll speak to Sandy Boss, Global Head of Investment Stewardship. Investment stewardship is how shareholders hold companies accountable. In short, it involves engagement with public companies to promote positive behaviors. We'll talk about how COVID-19 has impacted company behavior, why companies are now accountable to stakeholders beyond their shareholders, and what actions we at BlackRock have taken to increase transparency. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. We hope you enjoy. Sandy, thanks so much for joining us today. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So you're the head of investment stewardship at BlackRock. And that sounds like it could mean a lot of different things, but it really means something specific. So can you just start by sharing what investment stewardship means? In a very simple way, we are looking after our clients' interests in the companies that they invest in. So if you were an individual shareholder, you would invest in a company, you would watch how it was performing, you would vote on the shares, you would take that personal interest. And what we do in stewardship is do that on behalf of our clients with a lot of companies. So we go and speak with the companies, we meet with the directors, with the CEO, with the chairman, and we understand how they're running the companies. We focus in on the big issues, the key things that are really going to drive value. And on behalf of our clients, we then take votes and help them ultimately achieve better returns for their retirement and for whatever reason that they might be investing with us. How do you decide what you engage them on? What issues are you talking to them about? And who are you talking to? We're talking to the people who are calling the shots at the company. So it'll be the chair, the director, the CEOs, sometimes investor relations. And what we do is we're focusing on the things that make the most difference to value. So if it's climate, we might be talking to a company that has a really big carbon footprint about what are they doing to manage climate risk and possibly get some opportunities from managing the transition that we're going through to a lower carbon economy. We talk to them about board quality. So in that, we're thinking about are the directors independent? Are they skilled? Are they diverse? And are they representing a wide range of perspectives that are ultimately going to make that company more valuable on behalf of our clients? We might talk to them about human capital management. Human capital management is essentially looking out for primarily the employees, but the other stakeholders in an enterprise and how are their practices in a company enabling that company to be more successful because there's a lot of research that says if the employees are engaged, they like the company, they're staying, they're doing better work, they're more productive, and that then leads to better profits for the company. So those are just a couple of examples of the kinds of things that we would talk to companies about, but always it's anchored on what are the issues 
that are really important to the companies and that are ultimately going to drive value. And some of those questions have quantifiable answers. But in other areas of your discussions with companies and some of these other topics, for example, the S part of ESG, social issues like human capital management, you mentioned, there aren't as quantifiable answers. So what are the issues you're talking to companies about in those social issue categories and how do you get clear answers there? Well, first of all, you're definitely right that some of these social or S issues are much harder to quantify, but it's become obvious in the context of the COVID crisis, if it wasn't before, that managing that social and economic contract between the company and its customers, its suppliers, the community that it sits in, its employees, perhaps first and foremost, that set of relationships That's absolutely integral to companies' social license to operate. So what we are finding is that, and there's actually been research in the context of the crisis, the companies that have really sustainable practices across E, S, and G, with S being quite prominent right now, those companies have actually been a lot more resilient in how they've managed the financial side of this crisis And so when we think about the connection between these factors and investment returns, we see a clear correlation. So when we meet with companies, what we're doing is we're trying to understand how are they embedding these types of issues into the way that they face their day-to-day business. Yes, we're interested in how they're immediately responding to the crisis. But more importantly, what we're really looking for is How are they embedding these kinds of social considerations into the way that they intend to emerge from the crisis? And this comes back to a company that has its relationship with its relationship with its customers very clearly connected to its purpose. That company then will be much more able to deliver in a very uncertain world like the one that we're facing right now. So you mentioned climate, and that's been a particularly important topic for investment firms and particularly at BlackRock recently. You mentioned one reason is a company's carbon footprint, for example, is something that management teams have control over. But can you just explain a little more as an investor, why do we care so much about companies' climate preparedness and why should our investors in turn then care? Well, I think the simplest way to put it is that climate risk is an investment risk for the companies that we're invested in. So we don't see this in terms of the broader social good that is important. But as an investment company, our job is to really focus on the returns to our shareholders. And we can see that there will be a really substantial change in the way that capital is allocated as people start to anticipate a lower carbon economy. The companies that move quickly and manage these risks will be more valuable. The companies that don't, that then presents a real risk to our clients. We've actually done research that shows that the companies that are thinking about sustainability and climate in particular, they're managing these risks better and they're already beginning to show better risk-adjusted returns, which is what we're looking for as managers. We ask companies to use a couple of disclosures, a couple of ways of demonstrating how they are managing these risks so that we as investors can understand better. One of them is the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. The other is the Sustainable Accounting Standards Boards or SASB standards. 
But we ask for that information so that we can look at how the company is handling the strategic situation that they're facing. What are the decisions they're making? What are the targets they're setting? And then as investors, we can make decisions about whether that satisfies our expectations and whether that is ultimately going to move that company to a better position from a long-term value creation perspective than if they were not managing those risks. And our belief is that indeed, by managing these risks, that will generate value. And so once we have that point of view, what do we ask of them and what do we do about it? What are the levers we use? The two things that we do in working with companies, one is engaging, which is meeting with the companies to tell them what we're expecting. And the other is using our vote. So we've set aside companies that we think really should be managing climate risk, for example. And we've met with them to share with them, these are the concerns that we have. These are the expectations that we have. And then what we do is we evaluate how management responds. So the board, the management, they're responsible for ultimately the decisions they take as a company. Many of them have responded to requests from ourselves, from other investors, and are now disclosing how they govern risk, what their strategy is around climate, how they're actually changing their capital investment plans, what targets they're setting for reducing their carbon intensity. And when we see that, we're satisfied because that's what we're looking for as investors. However, if we don't see that, then we might take a couple of actions. One is voting action. So just as an individual would owning a share, we have opportunities to vote on directors and specific proposals that are on the ballot. We've taken several votes this year against people who are responsible for climate risk or sustainability risk, or sometimes it's members of the board who are in a senior position. But we'll take a voting action in order to demonstrate that we're not satisfied with the way that we're handling these risks. The other thing that we might do is vote on behalf of a shareholder proposal. So if a proposal has been put forward that we think is immediately addressing the issue that we're concerned about, then we might support a proposal. So just to dig a level deeper, what exactly we mean about these climate discussions, maybe take an energy company, for example. What are you asking them about? And how is that different from, or how far does the disclosure get you? That's a great question. Let's take a big oil company, for example. The primary climate question for a big oil company is, how are they managing the transition to a low-carbon economy? And really what we're looking for is, to what extent is that company then aligning its business to a Paris-aligned scenario? Well, a really good TCFD disclosure actually gets us quite a bit. It tells us how the company is governing that transition risk. It tells us what is the strategy that the company has set. It tells us what are the targets that the company has and how they're managing toward a sustainable business model that is prepared for this transition. And we can see then the connection between the targets that the company's setting, say several companies have now set net zero by 2050 targets. We can see the connection between those targets and then the decisions that the company's taking around how they're investing in new capital expenditures. For example, are they making green investments, starting to shift to different kinds of technology or less carbon intensive production methods, as opposed to companies who are saying that they've got really good targets, 
but at the same time making investments that look very much like they're continuing into a very carbon-intensive future, making very long-term expectations around how, you know, say, deep-sea oil will contribute to their business model. So really with this disclosure and the dialogue that we have with it, we really get to understand the approach that the company is taking and how that then will connect to the valuation of the company. And we've seen in this year alone, enormous swings in valuation in oil companies, for example, part of them having to do with the obvious pandemic that we're all facing and with the very low oil price that we've experienced, particularly at the beginning of the crisis. But also part of it is the choices those companies are making around their transition to a lower carbon economy. And so it sounds like our thesis, the evidence supporting it, our whole method of engagement is really well supported, but it really does depend in some cases on this voluntary engagement and voluntary responses from companies. So if they don't respond, if a company fails to disclose, what happens then? Well, it's a good question. The tool that we have is our vote. If we don't see companies providing that kind of disclosure that we need, then we will begin to vote against them in the 2021 year. And so we see a direct connection between our expectations and then how we use our vote. So Larry Fink, our CEO, often refers to this concept of stakeholder capitalism or the responsibility of companies to stakeholders like their employees and the society in which they operate, their clients and others beyond in addition to their shareholders. So what responsibility do you believe companies have to these stakeholders and how has that changed over time? I think that is self-evident now as we've seen how companies are handling what is one of the most turbulent situations any of us have lived through. We really think that that strong sense of purpose and commitment, that is absolutely vital to a company being able to manage this uncertainty, stay close to its customers and emerge in a successful place. This is very much in the interests of the companies themselves, because our observation is that increasingly the companies that are handling these issues well, those companies are able to attract longer term capital, more patient capital, achieve a lower cost of capital as a result. What we're also seeing is that the companies that are tone deaf on these issues, they're starting to see increasing skepticism in the market. So we're beginning to recognize that companies who aren't managing their stakeholder set well, who are disconnected from their stakeholder set, are ultimately having a higher cost of capital. And so are you suggesting there's a link between stakeholder engagement and returns? Or maybe if that's hard to kind of put our finger on today, is it even possible that these more sustainable behaviors more broadly can mitigate the impact of future downturns? Well, we've definitely seen a connection in research that BlackRock has done between sustainable business practices, and that's across E, S, and G. In stewardship, that's our conviction. And so that's why we put the energy that we do into taking on issues, which some are very quantifiable, some are less quantifiable, but there's clear alignment between these issues and a value generation for our clients. And so to what extent are we trying to then drive those more sustainable behaviors? I mean, you've talked about the voting mechanism. We have levers to do that. But how persistent are we? Are there some examples you can share maybe about where we really made a difference? 
I think one of the best examples of this is in Europe and particularly in the UK, looking at executive compensation and the role that the pension plays in executive compensation. So for a long time in the UK, it was quite typical that the executives would get a very high percent of their salary in pension, much higher than the workforce. What we saw is a disconnect between how executives were compensated and how their workforce was compensated when it came to pensions. And we pushed this issue a lot in our engagements with companies. We were able to get support from other investors on the issue. And we've seen absolutely dramatic changes, particularly in the last 12 months or so, where we've seen many, many companies now have moved to the practices that we think are more appropriate, bringing in new executives at the same level of pension as a percent of salary that they would do with the rest of their employees. And similarly, even seeing sitting executives take cuts in their pension in order to have a much more aligned compensation structure. We are committed to transparency in investment stewardship. And so what, as part of your job and your team's work, are you doing to deliver on that commitment? How are we making these kinds of conversations available and transparent to the end investors on whose behalf you're having them? Well, we've actually done quite a bit to be more transparent, particularly since January of this year. And first of all, our entire voting record is public. And now we're disclosing every vote that we take quarterly. Also in our quarterly report, we started doing something new, which is every quarter we now publish a list of the companies that we've engaged with. And we're also publishing the subjects. So what are the themes and issues that we're raising with those companies So it really helps give much more texture around what it is that we're doing when we engage with companies that might be less visible outside that voting record. Finally, we have vote bulletins that we're putting out on high-profile votes where we know there's interest in the subject, and we're really trying to give that transparency to both our clients and other people who are interested How did we vote? Why did we vote that way? What are we expecting from the company going forward? And we've gotten good feedback that that's been quite helpful to people who are interested in what we're doing as a stewardship group. So all of this work clearly takes expertise in corporate governance, a deep understanding of how companies actually function, probably understanding of regulation, a global perspective. Before you came to BlackRock to do this job, you worked at the Bank of England as a member of the Prudential Risk Committee. And before that, you were a senior partner at McKinsey. So you've been on different sides of those issues and developed that expertise over time. But how did your work in the public sector in particular shape your views about this kind of work that you're now doing back in the private sector? So working in the public sector, I think there's some differences and similarities. So if I think about what our objective was on the Prudential Regulation Committee at the Bank of England, the objective was to oversee the activities of individual companies with a higher aim of ensuring that the UK had financial stability. We had a lot of tools at our disposal, so we were able to be quite influential with companies But the responsibility for ensuring that the individual companies were themselves safe and sound, and then the system was safe and sound, the ultimate responsibility was with the boards and the management of those companies. So when I now look at what I'm doing in the private sector, I've taken with me that absolute understanding that 
our expectation of companies, that their expectations and their important expectations, but ultimately it's a responsibility of the boards and the management of companies to actually ensure that their company is being led in the right way. Our objective function is different than what we had at the Bank of England, but looking for long-term value for our clients It's a broad goal, so it's very similar to what we were seeking to do in the UK. So we end each episode of our sustainability mini-series with the same question to each of our guests. And I had to answer it myself a few weeks ago, and it's actually not as easy one as it may sound. But what was the moment that changed the way you thought about sustainability? For me, this is actually an easy question. So I was sitting in a meeting at the Bank of England with the Prudential Regulation Committee, and we were considering the first ever climate risk policy put out by a central bank in the world. And the interesting observation that we made in that room, and obviously Mark Carney is a real advocate for thinking about the role of climate risk, was that none of the traditional ways that risk management was done in financial institutions we're bringing this very, very long-term risk into the decision-making of the here and now. So a bank would look at, I'm about to take out a loan, and it's a three-and-a-half-year loan. Will it pay back in three-and-a-half years? But no one was asking, but what about the cliff edge? What about the viability of that loan three years, five years, ten years from now? as we start moving into a transition to a lower carbon economy. And I suddenly realized that if we at the bank didn't move our thinking about what's the right time horizon, how do we bring what some people might call a non-financial risk into the way that we were doing financial risk management, that we wouldn't be doing the right thing in our role. And I think that's the same kind of thing that we're doing now when I switch hats and think about my role in stewardship at BlackRock, these long-term, today's non-financial risks are increasingly becoming the financial risks of the future. They will show up in the financial statement of tomorrow or two years from now or three years from now. And that's something that it's our responsibility to be thinking about. That's a really remarkable example because it was that series of realizations and those discussions that did exactly what you just suggested in helping make this sort of intangible, far-out risk feel more tangible and, of course, help set the standards that next year will probably go into effect for stress testing. So thank you, Sandy. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and hopefully we'll do it again. MC, thank you very much. Again, a pleasure to be here. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener.
past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office, 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL, telephone, plus 44020-7743-3000, registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.